Hello and welcome again to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where we take a film out of the wonderful book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And as we do before every episode, we will give you our weekly, weekly recommendations. Ian, what do you got for us? Well, mine's is a quick little two-parter. Ooh. So, I, well, I watched one because of the other, essentially. Okay. So on Netflix recently, or, or kind of recently, they dropped uh, an Adam Sandler Netflix special. And now I'm not an Adam Sandler fan, as I'm sure you remember. I'm not big into his. I, I kind of like Happy Gilmore. Yeah. Uh, and I like a couple of his dramatic turns. Punch Drunk Love. Sure. Yeah. One of them because I'm an unrequited P.T. Anderson fan. That's and, fair. And uh, Rain Over Me, which really, really moved me. I haven't seen that one. That's with Don Cheadle, well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not enough people have seen that. It's really unfortunate because it's a great dramatic turn for me. He's got a lot that he has to do in that movie. Uh, and maybe I'll do it as a recommend on a on another episode. Um, there you go. But I was watching the Netflix special, the Adam Sandler 100% Fresh. And it's not that bad. Oh, they're, they're, I saw it? Oh, you saw it? What yeah. do you think? I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. It was nice to see him do something that wasn't Grown Ups 3 or Hotel yeah, Transylvania 3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it was nice to see him kind of raw and by himself and not having to lean on other actors. Because he is... The one thing that I can say about him that is good is that he um, he really does work good in an ensemble. He really does know. He's one of these these comic talents that knows how to bounce off of other people yeah. really well. I'm not going to say he's as good as Robin Williams, but there is a Robin Williams-esque-ness to that. Sure. I know, a bit of a stretch. but No, no, well, I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah. So because of his really moving Chris Farley thing, I, it really got me. And Liz, it did. Liz grew up with Chris Farley Me movies, too. Uh, and so she was just a blubbering mess by the end of that song. Yeah. I was like, all right, I've never seen a Chris Farley movie end to end. Oh, I can't wait. Okay, which one did you watch? Tommy Boy. Oh! Now, I had tried to watch Tommy Boy a couple of years ago and didn't get through it. I think I got 20 minutes in and I was like, no, nah, I'm done. Oh, man. I can't do it. So, I can quote so much of that movie. Liz actually bought a copy of Tommy Boy really cheap. Yeah. And uh, it took me three individual sessions to get through it. Ah. Oh. Well, and one of them is, is my fault. I started it too late. I was too tired. But the other two were just, I really was just fighting this thing to the nail, man. There's a couple of really good moments in it. I'll give it that. And it's and it, the best moments in it are, as you can tell, the love and respect that Spade and uh, and and Farley had for each other because the way that they interact is is fantastic and a couple of lines especially that I know were used in a lot of the advertising like a lot of people go to school for seven years they're called doctors like yeah, stuff like doctors. that there's some really yeah. good quick witted stuff in there but not enough of it it's just it's not good man and it is not age it's again another one of these like airplane or stripes which yeah okay if I had seen it in the day maybe I would have liked it a little bit more but it's I, I feel like that is a recurring theme. But it, I couldn't. I'm sorry. It's all the Chris Farley fans out there. It just it didn't do it for me. I don't think Chris Farley gets any better than that. Really? It, it, I mean, and I I I'm, won't I won't claim to be an SNL fan. Yeah. I I I never watched it enough when it was on then or now any any season any cast I've never really kept up with it. But in terms of the movies that he's done, like Black Sheep is is okay, and and um Beverly Hills Ninja is god awful. It's really not good. There's not a lot left in Chris Farley's repertoire that there really is to, to judge him on. I think Tommy did, Boy is lovely. Did he even do ten movies? 
I, I didn't look at his filmography before doing I mean, this. he's been in, like, he's in Wayne's World. He's a cameo in Wayne's yeah. World, Wayne's World 2, um, Coneheads. I mean, what, he's... What do I mean as a lead? No, I, yeah. I don't think he did. Yeah. But Tommy Boy is so... I guess I guess sentimental might be the right word. It, it is. Sure. It, I, you know, I watched it in, in my prime, in my youth. It was right around Happy Gilmore and mm-hmm. Billy Madison and all that that whole that that time and all those comedies stick with me. Yeah, and I, and I understand that there's there's got to be a certain nostalgia. And Liz said the same thing to me when I trashed it. She's like, "Just stop do, it! It's nostalgia." You know? I do enjoy that, like this the spade ripping on Farley stuff. I think that's yeah. so funny. Yeah, it's just. <laughs> It just again the only thing I I can really say is that it just hasn't aged well and I I feel like that's a shame some movies are really stuck in that their time period a certain way of making films or yeah. certain pop culture references that they make really drag them down uh, the one thing I will say that I did like about it is I wish there was more of him in it I know that there isn't really room for more of him but Dan Aykroyd yeah I I am a again I'm an unrequited Dan Aykroyd fan. Like, there are very few things he's done. Even when he's in garbage movies, like... I uh, make car parts for the American working man, yeah. because that's who I am. And, and the that's hair... That's who I care about. Oh, yeah. The hair that in the Ace Ventura way defies gravity. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Even even garbage stuff that he's in, like, Evolution. He, I, I never saw the, the scenes that he's... Well, it's just Ghostbusters with aliens. The, the scenes that he's in, he's, he tends to elevate them. Just slightly... Not, not enough to make the movie good, but just to give it a little bit more of a an edge. Sure. Anyway, that's that's mine for this week. What about you? Well, I well, I would recommend it. You would I, recommend I would. Tell Me Boy? I would, oh, yeah. I, would. I mean, luckily it's only 90 minutes, so um, nothing, nothing really ventured, nothing gained. Sure. Um, so my recommendation, uh, Ian, way back when, recommended a TV show. He recommended Jack Ryan uh, on Prime. I generally stick to movies, but, you know, occasionally a TV show will creep up. And Melissa and I started the show because we kept seeing it pop up on Facebook. The show on Netflix, The Haunting of Hill House. Oh. And here's the thing. Horror as a genre is not something that I generally click with. It doesn't, doesn't grab me. But when I see something that's horror that not only I find compelling and well-made but actually scares me, I praise it to the nth degree. It follows... The Conjuring, The Babadook, those are recent, kind of recent films where that happened for me, and I, I will, I will recommend those movies to everybody because I think they're really good. The Haunting of Hill House is fantastic. And how many episodes is it? Ten. Okay, perfect and, format then. Yeah, and they've talked about potentially doing a second season. I don't know how you would, and I hope they don't. And I won't spoil it because. Well, I said the same thing about Westworld, and look what they did. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah. But it's about this family who lived at this old creepy house called Hill House and it's years after they've lived there and there's an incident that nobody speaks of and one of the siblings has died and that's again that's not a spoiler because that happens in the first episode and that's what launches that's what launches everything but it's sort of all it's it's this it's this woman's brothers and sisters and her father that have to kind of like deal with her death and by doing that they have to relive all the stuff that happened at the house and it is creepy it is genuinely creepy and scary and well acted, and you really actually care about these people. Um, it's good, and it's recent enough that I don't want to say too much. No. In the fifth or sixth episode, there's the bulk of the episode. It's like four or five really long shots. I mean, it's impressive filmmaking. It's really good. That's and again, exciting when you see that. Creepy, creepy, creepy. It, it's That's cool. I, and we watched it just past it. Halloween, and so we kind of missed that perfect Halloween time for. But it's still good. Anybody in it that stands out? Um, yes, Timothy Hutton. Oh, okay. plays the dad. 
the present day dad. Yeah, I haven't um, seen him in much in a while. No, and he's he's really good. Yeah. Um, and uh, Henry Thomas is in it. Oh, I know that name. E.T. Oh, okay. Grown up, grown up Elliot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's some recognizable faces, but I, I, I couldn't pull the names. Yeah. But it's good. And it's, it is, and it is definitely an ensemble piece. Nice. It's really, it's good. Now, how quickly did you go through it? So the, we watched two episodes in one night, yeah. and we were like, okay, I think this is going to be good. And then the next two nights, we watched four. We just, it just, in each way ended, and we were like, yeah, and we're going to have to. And that's one of the best recommendations that I think you can really give a show. Yeah. Like Liz, Liz and I did that with uh, True Detective Season 1. Oh! And uh, pretty, was it Pretty Little Liars? Or, no, Big, Big, Big Little Lies. Yeah. Which, I'll, I'll go a short tangent. The first episode, I wasn't in at all. Didn't care about the show. And we're like, okay, we'll give it a second one. And we're like, oh my god, this is something. Why did they mess the first episode up so badly? They got something really special here. And again, that's another show where I don't know how they're going to do a second season of it. Because that seemed to wrap itself up really nicely. Well, you're losing your shit over there. I'm Because like you said Pretty Little Liars, which I think was I like know. an ABC. Yeah, I know. I, I know. <laughs> Yeah, please, please leave this in. <laughs> yeah, see, that's... I just like the thought of adult Ian watching Pretty Little Liar. Oh, it just or, makes me... Or, like, Gilmore Girls or something like that. Well, but, like, Gilmore Girls was, like, on a real channel. Like, like yeah. Pretty Little Liars was not... <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> okay. I'm glad you at least knew what I meant. I, oh, I, no, I got it. The HBO. Yeah, yeah, yeah The yeah, HBO no, one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but to quickly talk about, you said there's some long shots... In Haunting of Hill House, how about that long take at the end of, you remember the end of episode four of True Detective season one, where they go, he goes back to, in, and infiltrates that biker gang that he went undercover with, and then he pulls the dude out of the house, and then they're like running through the neighborhood trying to escape the gang, and it's like following them through the neighborhood and through the different houses until he meets up with the other guy in the car again. I mean, maybe. Do you it's, remember that? It's an, unfortunately, we only, I mean, we watched it once, and it, okay. I think it was when it first came out. Oh, so it's been a little while. And then we, I have the sour taste of the second season of True Detective you, lingering. Oh, what? The second season? I'm not going to say it was as good, but there's, I don't understand all the hate that it gets. Oh, it's it's not good. I was, I was It's convoluted, that. and I don't really care about anybody in it. Really? Yeah. You don't care about uh, the Rachel McAdams character? No. Or... Nope. Wow. No. Nope. See, that, for me, that was a huge departure for her as far as other things that she's done. I, she oh, was no. really stretching her acting legs there and well, doing now, a phenomenal job. I would, agree, I would agree with that, but I, I just didn't seem to care. And I'm, and I'm kind of a Colin Farrell champion. Like, I've always believed that there was potential well, in, in, under there. And, and it Bruce took him, turned yeah, it around. Yeah, exactly. No, it took him a good five or six years to really find his stride, and now that he's found it... And he's making things like the lobster and making things like I love the lobster. Did you see the the other one he did with that director? Uh, that, no, but I've I've down ooh, Killing of a Sacred Deer. It's so good. It looks it's good. It's so much better than the lobster. Like, ooh, if okay. You, if you think the lobster is is good, this I is did. gonna really blow. What did uh, what did Colin Farrell say in the interview I read? He said um, he feels like Killing of the Sacred Deer is a nightmare that one of the characters in the lobster would have. Okay. Yeah. So let that ruminate for a little bit and that it's he's spot on because that movie goes so far beyond anything the lobster did well speaking of of nightmares and uh things that aren't the way that we would normally see them that's kind of a segue into the movie that we will be talking about very nice today if i was wearing a hat i would take it off thank you and we are releasing this episode a day after 
Terry Gilliam's birthday. Which, happy birthday, Mr. Gilliam. Happy birthday, Mr. TG. And so we decided we would talk about one of the two movies credited to him in the book, but in a real way, the only real movie that he directed that's in the book, and that would be 1985's Brazil, with a pretty... Interesting cast. Uh, really jo- a kind of prolific cast. Yeah. A, uh, better, a better cast than most of his films deserve. That's, tr- that's true. Uh, Jonathan Price is our lead. And then everybody else is, you know, kind of a smaller part, nice supporting role. De Niro, Ian Holm, Bob Hoskins, Michael Palin, Kim Greist. Jim Broadbent, Ian Richardson, oh, yeah. Peter yeah. Vaughn, Catherine Hellmans. It goes on and it, on. It does. It does. I, I didn't. And, and I it's basically got so picked my favorites. Yeah. Well, and there you go. Ian Holm. I think this is one of Ian Holm's best performances. Bob Hoskins. I know he's not in it very much, but he's, he leaves he's a fun. massive impression in it. We talked about. Well, I'll leave. I'll leave my unsung hero for later in the yeah. in the episode. Is, can I call it now? Is it going to be De Niro? Oh, it is. Okay. I thought yeah. So. It absolutely is. I, I have a funny story about that when we. Oh, great, that. great. So directed by Terry Gilliam, written by Terry Gilliam and uh, Charles. Is it McEwen? Charles McEwen and uh, Tom, Tom Stoppard, Stoppard who yeah. is very famous for having written Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, yep. Yep. which is fantastic. And I, I do know him more as a playwright. Right. So I haven't read the play, but I really enjoyed the the Tim Roth, Gary Oldman movie. Yeah. It's it's a fun play. It's a play I hope at some point in my future I get to do. I, I would, Who would you play? I don't care. It's fun. It doesn't... Either no. One. No. Yeah. It's one of those bucket list shows yeah. that I would play. I would And I would play... The Player King or, or Hamlet in it. Like I would, I just want to be in that show. I prefer to be Rosencrantz or Guildenstern, but yeah, it's just, it's a great script. Yeah. So let's talk about some some accolades. Do we want to get that out yeah, now? Yeah, some absolutely. stats. Well, first I want to I want to mention who it's produced by Arnon Milchin, who is a huge hero of mine. If you take a look at his filmography, as far as what he's produced, and this is one of his first big ones. I mean, the one that he really broke Hollywood with was working with Sergio Leone on his last film, Once Upon a Time in America, which is an episode I cannot wait to get to. I haven't seen it, so it'll be good. Oh, I'm very excited for you to see that. There you go. He produced uh, some of my favorite films of the last couple of years, most prolifically 12 Years a Slave and The Revenant, but he also produced one of my top 10 films of all time, L.A. Confidential. Ooh. This guy this guy just very, very rarely puts a foot wrong. Yeah. And apparently people love working with him. I have heard few bad things said about Arne Milchin. Well, there you go. Yeah. So... God, I want to I want to get into stats, but maybe not awards because part of I think the interesting interesting thing about this movie is how awards season went for Brazil. Mm. So maybe we'll skip over some awards. Um, oh well, we don't want to mention. I I kind of want to bring this up again because there was an episode. We well we the the Back to the Future episode. Yeah, we're gonna talk about Witness, and so this has an opportunity to bring Witness up again. And so I really do want to sideline here. And, and figure out why it is you don't like Witness. So to, to give you some context, uh, <laughs> Brazil was nominated for original screenplay and lost to Witness. Mm-hmm. And then it was also nominated for uh, set and art de- uh, decoration and then lost to Out of Africa. Which I- I've, I've not seen Out of Africa, but I have seen Witness. And Witness is one of my hands-down favorite films of the 80s. And it's my favorite Harrison Ford performance. So... You're looking for me to say something negative about Witness. Yes. And it's not that I think it's a bad movie. Sometimes I think it's the Academy doesn't do a great job of of putting the right movies forward for screenplays, whether it's original or adapted. I didn't find that story all that original or or interesting. Not to to say that that it was... Well, because it's a... uh, For you, it's a basic fish-out-of-water story, I'm assuming. Yeah. Okay. And that's... I. 
that's a fair argument. And and, and it's it's they get it, I, I just think they get it wrong sometimes anyway. It was for me it was just as weird when Straight Outta Compton was nominated for Best Original Screenplay because there was no previously published stuff. But oh, I that have the is same. such an adapted story. It, I have really, the same problem with Milk. It, it, oh yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So part of it is an Academy problem, and part of it too is just that I think Back to the Future is a more Original screenplay, original screenplay. If you want to take the original part of it literally, and and and, and maybe I shouldn't. Maybe you know, maybe it's well, just best screenplay, I'm, not based off of. And I'm not saying you're wrong to do oh, no, that. I just yeah, I, but I do take it that so way. So I'm going to assume that the witness just doesn't really move you one way or the other. Yeah, and and now take take the the award thing out of it. Say it hadn't won any awards. How would you feel about Harrison Ford's performance in particular? Oh, I think I I think it's a fine movie. Yeah. I do not. I don't think it's a bad movie. Yeah. I just when compared I just to, to when I compared wanted, to Back to the Future, I just wanted to get to the root of that. That's was all. I mean, because for me, it was it came at a very important time in Harrison Ford's career because he'd been known for mainly action adventure, yeah. fantasy type. You know, obviously Star Wars, Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. He hadn't really flexed his dramatic chops at all, and yeah. this really showed people. Oh wait, he's more than just a space cowboy, or he's more than just this, you know, fantasy-addled archaeologist. Like, the guy can really do some things that we weren't expecting of him. Yeah. I, the, the the scene, and I, I may have mentioned it before, but the, the scene in the barn with Sam Cooke's uh, What a Wonderful World, uh, where, you know, he gets the car going again, and the first thing that comes up are the lights and the radio, and he starts dancing with her, and then they're discovered by the father top 10 scenes in any film of any decade ever for me it re- there's just something about it that is just so not saccharine because i don't want to cheapen it sure but, but it hits the right buttons for you it does yeah. it really does yeah. but we've we've digressed enough i think oh yeah let's get back to brazil um, I, I apologize for our little tangent there, oh no worries listeners um so mixed reviews oh that came out oh absolutely well you have what's what's interesting is that and we'll get to this when we delve into the the documentary portion of it but you have the West Coast absolutely adoring this film, yep. and the East Coast pretty much just ignoring it yeah. off the bat, which is really a decision by the LA critics to kind of change up the way that films are voted on and, and kind of you know give a dig at the studios yeah. a little bit. So, what was your familiarity with this movie? How many times had you seen it before? This is, or in, including this, like how many times have you seen it? So, including the god awful Love Conquers All. Essentially, what and I agree with with uh, with Gilliam when he says this is the the Sid Steinberg version that yeah. he should just have put his name on it instead of Gilliam's, including the Love Conquers All version, which is one of the few films I had to take a shower after watching because of how <laughs> filthy it made me feel. For the record, the other two are the Johnny Depp Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the oh. Ralph and the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings. Don't ask me why. We can deal with that later. We'll do. We will. <laughs> So including the Love Conquers All version, this is probably my fifth time seeing it. And the more I watch it, the less I like it. So I attempted to watch this once, like, 12 years ago. Okay. First first time I ever owned this book, the Jack Nicholson cover. Yeah. It was one of those recommendations. And I think I had just seen Clockwork Orange. And I was like, I want to see something else of this sort of... Dystopian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Present time, but certainly not with present ideals or values. It's a certain, it's a different kind of world. Yeah. And so I popped this in and I just remember not being able to get past the first 15 minutes. And that might've been just my, that might've just been a college aged Adam, not quite ready to sit down and watch this movie. So this was my first real time watching it. Right. It's the only time I've ever seen it. 
Well, and that and that kind of makes sense. I mean, it, it really does make sense for this film. And this is probably an ideal that we should tackle towards the end of the podcast, but let's just do it now. This is a film that really shouldn't resonate with American audiences because you don't have bureaucracy here in the same way that we had in the UK, especially around this time, and especially the things that it says about Thatcherism and, and bureaucracy and things like that. Like, I, I understand why the studios wanted to manipulate certain aspects of it and certain darker themes within it, because it's just they're, they're themes that just don't resonate with you guys here in the same way that you don't have know classes and in the same way that 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 there are in the uk sure yeah i hear you yeah you know i generally start to lead these when we get into the plot but i don't know that i have it in me that that's okay and do you mind do you mind yeah i can i can take uh so if you haven't seen uh brazil before so the film is set it's kind of ambiguous when it's set which is part of the reason why i don't like this movie right there there is ambiguity in it almost to a fault i i want to or maybe not almost to a fault there's ambiguity in it to a fault i want to read something and this is now this is from wikipedia so who you know this could be taken from bits and pieces of things but i just want to read this in the second version of the script gillian described the film setting like this it is neither future nor past and yet a bit of each it is neither east nor west but could be belgrade or shunthrope on a drizzly day in February, or Cicero, Illinois, seen through the bottom of a beer bottle. What does that mean? Yeah, and and <laughs> and I, I keep coming back to this idea that specificity elicits creativity, and in my mind, that's a bullshit answer. Yeah, you know, I, I can't argue with that. It's it's. I mean, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna. We're not gonna get on this tangent. But for me, it's it's the same as a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Somehow, Star Wars being like a futuristic movie yeah. but also somehow in the past which is a great family guy joke by the way yeah. yes I, it really is um and we're not going to go down that path but yeah this movie is yeah i don't know when or where or how yeah sorry so, so first of all it's yeah. kind of hard to jump into which is fair so you have this big bureaucracy you have this fella sam lowry who is the jonathan price character he's kind of you would say he's stuck in a rut, but he does make it quite vocal that he's happy where he's at. Yeah, I was he's happy he... to be a cog in the machine. Yep. He's comfortable where he is. He doesn't really want to be noticed. And he is leaned on extremely heavily by his boss. Uh, the Mr. Ian Kurtzman? Holm. Yes, yeah. Mr. Kurtzman, the Ian Holm character, which, again, I think this is one of Ian Holm's best performances. Uh, I, I love how kind of weaselly he is in it. So he gets caught up in this thing so to go even before they introduce his character you have the whole buttle tuttle yep. mix up which mm-hmm. again plays into gilliam's hatred of bureaucracy so there's a guy sitting in a room typing up these reports or these reports are being typed up automatically on a typewriter uh for an arrest warrant for a man named tuttle archibald Archibald Tuttle. Tuttle, who is the Robert De Niro character, who is a uh, a member of Central Services, who goes around fixing people's heating well, ducts. He's rogue. He's rogue. That's, he's that's not, why he's that's yeah. why he's being arrested is because he doesn't follow the code and he doesn't do. He says many times how he hates the paperwork and I I got in this gig for the action and which is just a great little sentiment in itself because you're fixing heating and air conditioning ducts, but whatever. And so uh, he there's this fly that's bugging this uh, bureaucrat. And he ends up squashing it, but he hits it 
in this weird scene where he crawls up on the desk on top of this filing cabinet that you feel is going to go ass over tea kettle. Yeah, I thought it was going to die. Yeah. And he, he swats the bug, it falls in the machine, and then for some reason it changes the, the tunnel to a buttle. They arrest the wrong man, and you find out later in the film that he was tortured to death. Yeah, he dies by, in, in custody. Right, by the friendliest torturer probably in film history. It's a, a member of the Pythons, Michael Palin. Yep. Who... Um, while I'm on the subject of Michael Palin, there's a very, very great quote from Michael Palin about Terry Gilliam films, something that he reportedly said to Eric Idle, another Python, when he was going to go work on uh, Munchausen a few years later with, uh, with Gilliam. Because Palin, Palin had done another film with uh, Gilliam, uh, Jabberwocky, his first solo directorial effort. And he reportedly said to Eric Idle, no, 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 don't, don't do that. You don't you don't star in Gillian movies. You just watch them. Idol didn't listen, and he he's had a few choice words about working with with Gilliam as well. Uh, he said something to the effect of he only enjoys. He's an animator. Yeah, Gilliam by yes. by trade. Yeah. He's an animator. He did all the animations for the the Flying Circus and for the Python movies as well. He's he's actually quite. I kind of like his animations. They're very unique. Yeah, I I really enjoy them. But uh, he's he said about, Eric Idle said about Gilliam that uh, he's an animator and he's only happy when there's chaos and he's fixing that chaos, which doesn't make for a very good director, as we'll discuss later. Yeah. Anyway, back to the plot. So Sam Larry gets caught up in this error. With all these reports being passed back and forth. He ends up taking a visit to Buddle's widow, which is. Probably, I think, one of the best scenes in the movie. Because it's the most... It's, it's one, it's the most human scene in the film, and it's also the most dehumanizing scene in the film because of the way that she is pleading with him what happened to his body and the way that he is treating her. Yeah. In the sense where he's saying, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be a decent bloke and I will go myself to get you the paperwork to file a formal complaint. I mean, how kind of dehumanizing is that? Yeah. While all this is going on, he's got this odd relationship with his mother who is obsessed with plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. And there are rival plastic surgeons in the film, one of them played by um, Jim Broadbent in one yeah. of his earliest roles. I'm a huge Jim Broadbent fan. Oh, he's good. He's a wonderful actor. Yeah. He's done so, so many good things. I'm sure most American audiences probably know him for... Uh, he's in the last couple of Harry Potter films, and he's in Moulin Rouge yes, as yep. well. And then there's Jack Purvis, who is one of the uh, one of the Time Bandits as well. Another great Terry Gilliam film. They're rival surgeons, yeah. rival plastic surgeons who have different ways of going about their plastic surgery. And the plastic surgery scenes are really good. the The effects there, I think, are yeah, are really quite good. And so, and also, as this is going on, Sam is having these dreams, and in the dreams is Kim Greist as this angel yeah kind of angelic figure yes. you would say she's a he's an she's an ideal she's the damsel in distress that he but she resting. also happens to literally be a person right. um, she's the upstairs she lives neighbor above the buttles yes. yes and sees all this happen and she is working against the bureaucracy as well to try and right this wrong and so it, it ends up in him seeing her and realizing that she is quite literally the woman of his dreams and then, you know, the plot proceeds from there. There's a huge kind of chase sequence where he's trying to, to save her from being arrested herself at the Ministry of Information because she is now identified as a witness yeah. to their buttle-tuttle mix-up. And there's also another subplot as well with other Central Services figures who are deliberately, it seems, sabotaging his air conditioning because of the... He mentions a form that they need to fill out oh, to yeah, fix it. Oh, yeah, the... 
the twenty seven B dash oh twenty seven B stroke six. Yes. Is that what they say? Yeah. And of course the the Scottish fella who's escorted uh, Bob, Bob Hoskins, Hoskins loses yeah. his mind. It's a great scene. The, the little relationship between the two of them yeah, it's is, pretty funny. is wonderful. Bob Hoskins, even though he's not in it very much, does a wonderful job. He really stands out. And so, yeah, there you go. I mean, that's that's basically the plot. I mean, he gets uh, he decides to take the promotion that his, his mother offers him. He only really does it so that he can track down Jill, the Kim Greased character. Yeah. And uh, he his promotion further dehumanizes him because he gets turned into a, a number rather than a name. And there's some great stuff going on in there as well. Charles McEwen plays the uh, the guy that he shares a desk through a wall with. That's pretty funny. And they're, as they're fighting for more desk space, which is a great little bit of, of physical comedy. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and it funny. comes at exactly the point where the film needs it because the film is really, to me, slowing down at that point. And so to have that quirky little relationship between the two of them is nice but ultimately that doesn't save the film from then slowing down again kind of jumping ahead because i don't want to jump over major plot points but eventually he comes up with this idea because now because now the state the whoever you want to call it um the ministry the ministry is looking for jill right he sneaks into the ministry of information yeah essentially the the head guy's office and to erase her file yes and he yeah. basically he he basically la- he labels her as deceased right so, so they'll that stop looking they'll stop looking yep exactly and they have they start to have a relationship and then of course uh they find him and they find her and the movie's old enough now so we can totally talk about the ending him and uh is it jack the michael palin character the, the are, torturer yes are, are old friends and it looks like Sam is about to get tortured when De Niro busts in with all these other rogue. Yeah, they come down the uh, yeah that shaft on the. Uh, oh, what are those called? They they repel in. Yes, exactly into the yes. cooling tower. Which again, I'll just because it's a good segue right now. That's my favorite shot in the film where it it the camera pulls back very dramatically. Oh yeah, that... to, to where they're inside the cooling tower. Yeah. in the torture chamber, as it were. And this is where, of course, the Love Conquers All version changes dramatically because you have the rescue and then you have the the happy and as the name implies the love conquers all it ends with them together living out on some farmstead Farm, or something yeah exactly like that. yeah but in in reality he sam has been lobotomized yeah and at the end of the film he's essentially left in that cooling tower having lost his mind completely and he's humming brazil and and i i, I gotta say i hate that song we open like we open with it, and I'm like, oh my god! I... And there's about seven variations on it. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's hard because whenever it comes up, I'm like, oh. Dear. Well, here's here's the reason why it's in there is because the the genesis of the film was I believe they were scouting locations either for Holy Grail or for Flying Circus. Yeah. And there, Gilliam is is looking at this huge factory that's right next to a beach and there's a man sat by himself as the sun is going down. So you have the juxtaposition of all this industry with this lone man sitting on this beach at this beautiful sunset and on the radio that the man had with him, the song Brazil was playing, which is a bit of a stretch, but eh, you know, whatever. If, if that's, if that's what the inspiration was, that that's what it was. Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I, and I have to say, I, I do love the ending of Gilliam's version. Not one because the movie is over, because the film is quite exhausting. <laughs> there, there are aspects of it that are rewarding, but it is exhausting as well, so I'm happy that it ends. But I also do love the bleakness of the ending, Sam having gone through all of this only to just 
be tortured by his best friend and lost his mind. Sure. I have two big issues with this movie. The first is, and I'm going to kind of trail back to something you mentioned yeah, earlier, no, of course. which is, I don't care about anybody. Yeah, I... Yeah, there are very few relationships in it worth caring about. I and mean, there's there's a not a lot. There's well, and the other issue, and it's the same issue that runs through a lot of Gilliam films, is the character development is sorely lacking. Jill's motivations for she wants Sam out of her life as soon as possible when yes. they first meet, and yeah. then all of a sudden she's jumping into bed with him, and there's no real. It, it's tough. It's a big it, jump. It's a big sell. It's a big jump, and then to the next day to have this. A horrible line. I really don't like this line. She goes, what does she say? How about a little necrophilia once he's basically told her that she's been pronounced dead? I'm like, yeah. that is an awful That's line. That's a weird line. And she's wearing, so in his dream sequences, she's got long, flowing blonde hair. Yeah. In the real life, she's got it it's short and cropped. Mm-hmm. When he comes back, she's wearing that wig yeah. from his dream. And it's, you. I think they, they make reference to it being one of his mother's wigs. And so there I is think a it bit has to be right because that's where they're at. There is a bit of the whole Oedipus complex running through this film. And again, in in his fantasy sequence after he's been rescued, he's there at at the funeral of his mother's rival. Yes, who has been killed by how much acid plastic surgery she's had. Yeah. and it's it's switching back and forth between Kim Grace and Catherine Hellman, who plays his mother, as yeah. she's now young and beautiful. Yep. And so it's the the case of you know. The, dating somebody who essentially is going to turn into your mother and vice versa or something like that. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. It's, yeah, there is a bit of a, as I say, an Oedipus complex that runs through that scene in particular. It was just, it was interesting because at one point I asked, you know, who do I care about? And Melissa was watching the movie with me and she goes, well, you probably want to care for the Buttles, but... They're barely in you it. You don't get any. and that, Exactly. And so it's like the arrest of... of Archibald Buttle at the beginning of it is so it's so glossed over. It's like yeah, we really that's not it, the focus. The focus of the story is, seems to be Sam and Jill, which I get because that's who you're following. But I think in terms of it from a humanity standpoint, you want to care about the Buttles more. Right. And then my other pretty big issue with the film, and I took a lot of notes throughout this movie because there was a lot going on. All of the pipes. This idea of, of paperwork and nobody taking responsibility, nobody wanting responsibility, passing responsibility to somebody else. This idea that everything can be fixed by paperwork, by the proper paperwork. Well, there's the and, great line where they do arrest Buttle and they're going through the, here's, the, here's my receipt for your yeah, receipt. Exactly, exactly. Which is Gilliam, again, it comes back to Gilliam being the artiste that he is and hating bureaucracy in well, the way sure. that he does. And then, and then there was the bombings and the fact that the band kept playing as the bombings were happening. Which is one of my favorite things about the film is because it, and I think this is probably, now of course this was set, this was made while the Troubles were in full swing in the UK, sure, where you would yes. have bombings like that yes. with you know conflict between Protestants and Catholics and things like that. So it makes sense in in the time period, but it's even more for me relevant now with the number of mass shootings that we have and terrorist incidents and things like that. And to 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 almost feel like they're just this is just a part of living now. Sure. So why not have the band play on? No, no, oh no, I get it. I get what yeah. he's trying to say with that. And then there's also all the stuff with the plastic surgery that you talked about earlier. There's all this stuff with De Niro. And when I got to the end of this movie, the thought that I had was, this movie is about so much that ultimately, to me, it's about nothing. 
that I couldn't have said it better. It was a like a big garbage pile of stuff that I think separately are all these nice little gems, mm. but you threw them together and I can't make anything out of this mishmash of stuff. No, I you have 100% hit the nail on the head with that. Like even, I mean, there are so many parts that I, I, I enjoy. I mean, from a comedic standpoint, I love when De Niro rigs up the suits and Bob Hoskins and his friend literally their suits fill up with shit. And see that for me, I have the opposite reaction. Oh, see, to I feel like Gilliam is sabotaging the 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 dramatic themes in his work with doing something like that. He's kind of underwriting himself or undercutting the poignancy of what he's trying to say. It's all over the place. It really is. And it's it was hard to hard to care mm-hmm. and hard to pick a, a storyline and and follow it through and and feel like I've I've learned something. Well, Gilliam is is one of these filmmakers. For every one good movie he makes, I'm going to say he he makes about three kind of off-the-rail films. Films where he he's, he is really, and I hate to be the guy that advocates for studio interference, because there are times where it can backfire in the sense of you take a look at something like The Brothers Grimm, which had the Weinsteins. That's not a Gilliam film. That's essentially a Weinstein film. They're all over that thing, truncating it and stifling it and castrating it. So So it can backfire on you. But in a case like this, I do feel like, and maybe this is a good opportunity to get into the battle for Brazil, yep. but this is a, I do feel like there was a compromise that could have been reached between Gilliam and Scheinberg, but this is what happens when you, uh, an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. These are two guys who feel very, very passionately about what they do, and they both feel that they are right, and no one is going to make those concessions. And so ultimately... You have something that nobody's going to enjoy because you. This is what this medium is about: is about compromise, and it's about having to wear multiple hats. And I feel like, as much as I do respect Gilliam, and as much as I do find that there are things in his films that are extremely rewarding, he's he doesn't seem to be the greatest collaborator in the world. And that's that's what and that's he's not willing to compromise on his vision. So the the comparison that I was going to draw. Because he is uh, he's an incredible visualist, and nobody is ever going to take that away from him. So what he needs to be is more of a Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott, I know that there are some latter-day sins of his that we... He, it's, uh, people argue that he is slipping as a filmmaker. I know there's a lot of backlash towards Prometheus, Exodus. A lot of people didn't like The Counselor, which was really unfortunate. I I mean, there's, there's a whole uproar now about talks of a second Gladiator film which is completely unnecessary. I still find value in some of this later work, especially in something like The Counselor. I do wish he would do more things like that. Well, and it's it's one thing... I mean, I don't think any director has a perfect track record. Oh, absolutely. But it, and and it, those but, Nolan fanboys can shut up right now. Even he does not have a perfect track record. Just shut your mouths. And, and, and I'm, I'm a fanboy, and I, I can agree with that. Because there's, there's so two you're, that you're, are subpar. Right, you are a rational fanboy. Yeah, you're not one of these guys that goes on IMDb and gives Interstellar, you know, yeah, ten out of ten. Yeah, exactly. But but in terms of Ridley Scott, that's I wonder what we'd be saying about him if if The Martian wasn't as good as it was. Oh, absolutely. You know, because you're right, Exodus and uh, and Prometheus didn't they weren't really well received, and that's okay. Not every movie you're you're gonna make is gonna be fantastic. The real question is is can you come back and make something worthwhile? Yeah. And that's a valid argument, too, but the point I wanted to make with Ridley is that 
he produces all of his films as well. Yes. So he wears both hats. He is both one a businessman. He is a an astounding businessman. And this is something that we'll probably go into more when we cover one of his films. But, I mean, before he started making films, he had his own advertising company with his brother, Tony. Yeah. The Ridley Scott Associates. And he, you know, sort of mentored so many men that, men and women that would go on to make their own films. And he was sick and tired of seeing all these people coming up under him and then going into features while he was still making commercials. He made something like 2,000 commercials yeah. before he ever made his first film at 40, which is The Duelist, which we've talked about yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. But the point is is that he wears both hats. He is, yes, one, an artist. He knows how to craft beautiful films and tell very, very engaging stories. But he's also a producer as well, so he knows the business end of it. And he knows how to juggle those relationships. He made those compromises on Kingdom of Heaven, which I feel is one of his strongest films. Now, anybody who has seen the theatrical cut of that will disagree with me, but anybody who has seen the director's cut will will absolutely know what I'm talking about is like, okay, give the studio what they want. I know it's not going to do great, but I have the opportunity now on home video to put out the version that I know is the better version and really let people decide. And this is the thing I love about him, especially Blade Runner. You have all five versions of Blade Runner on, you know, those couple of discs. So you can pick and choose what you like. Sure. So that Gilliam to me really needs to take a page out of Ridley Scott's book and learn to be a producer as well as a director yeah. and understand the business end of it. Because in, in many interviews that I've seen with him, and especially now let's get into the Battle, Battle Brazil, Brazil yeah. he goes into that a lot. He's the little guy fighting against you know the big corrupt studio system who want to squash his vision and it's very much you know the underdog kind of thing. He does, there's, there are times to me where he almost goes out of his way to to be victimized. And I and I, maybe I'm harshly judging him. I don't know the man. I don't know the struggles and strifes that he's been through. But sure. this is just what the, I don't feel the documentary which is originally was on the Criterion Laserdisc yeah. and now has been ported over to other media releases as well, mm-hmm. which it's a anybody who sees the film should absolutely watch the documentary as well to have a deeper understanding of how and why. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I found I found the documentary more compelling than the movie. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing that is ultimately important about Brazil, and probably the reason it's in the book is what it did for the industry. That, sure, what that battle did. You can say either whether whether negatively or positively, it did make an impact. I, I would say, yeah, I do love. While I'm not a fan of the film, I do love how hard he worked to get it seen by people. Right. So it it had already been seen in France. It had premiered in February of that year. So what had happened is the, the, the money was put up by two different firms. It was put up, what was it? Something like 6 million was put up by Fox for the worldwide rights and 9 million was put up by universal for North American rights. And Gilliam claims that he had final cut across the board. And we ultimately know that wasn't true. Mm hmm. Uh, so it had been out in France and places across Europe, you know, earlier in the year. And it's the same thing that we're seeing with Quixote now. And it ultimately makes a lot of sense why Gilliam is so drawn to that character and the feelings of being victimized and things. It's, it, sure. it, it makes sense. If, if, there's, if there's one filmmaker out there who is absolutely the right choice to make Quixote, it's, it's Gilliam. Because many of his struggles are Quixote-like in nature. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's, that's how the money was split. And then when it came to release it in America after playing so well in Europe, 
ultimately the studio took issue with it. And of course, there had been some, you know, changes in the heads of departments yes. while this was happening. And so it came to Sid Sheinberg, who just, we'll just call a spade a spade. He didn't understand the film. And which is fair for reasons that I brought up. You guys don't have the same sort of bureaucratic issues that the UK had at the time, which is ultimately about what the film is about. And so they they were calling it not commercial. And uh, the thing that I really like in the documentary is how differently Milshan and Gilliam interpreted what they said about it after the screening is we need to sell this as the film of the decade, which Milshan went, that's amazing. That's the greatest thing I've ever heard said about the film. And Gilliam went, okay. I know what this means. Yeah. This means you do not get the film yeah. at all. And so there were there were back and forth. He refused to deliver a cut that was 125 minutes. Now, the cut that is called the director's cut here in the States is uh, 142 minutes. And he refused to take it down to 125. Ultimately, I believe it was released in the States as 131. So there are, in fact, three different cuts of the film. There's the director's 142 minute, there's the theatrical 131, and then there's the Love Conquers All, which clocks in at 92 Yeah, it's or pretty short. Yeah. Yeah. And so the battle s- sort of spilled over into the public eye. Yep. Now, let's be, let's be real about that, though. That was all Gilliam. That was all Gilliam. And he knew that everybody would root for the underdog. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was very manipulative about that. Yeah. The, the full-page ad stark black and white that he put out in i believe it was variety Variety, yeah saying mr scheinberg when are you going to release my film brazil signed terry gilliam and of course he went on things like good morning america really famously got the rare de niro Niro appearance appearance. and he claims that he got de niro de niro was in a good mood so we got three words out of him yeah because de niro very famously does not do that his inside the actor studio episode is I've not seen it. It's okay. I mean, it, it's talkative for him, but even then, he's still very reserved. Yeah. He's not the uh, the podium-pounding, tr- anti-Trump De Niro that I think we know now. Yeah. You know, 70s, 80s, early 90s De Niro. He wasn't He's, he's more, of a, more of a Harrison Ford in that regard, because I, I love early Harrison Ford, especially Letterman interviews, if you've ever seen any of those. I how, haven't. How nervous he is and how much he hates being there. Like, he does this thing where he's constantly, like rubbing the armrests. He's got this nervous tick. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. But anyway, uh, Gilliam was asked to uh, USC later in the year. Yep. Uh, where he attempted a clandestine screening of his cut. The projectionist, knowing the ins and outs of the studios and the studio, said he refused. No, there was, well, it's a little different because he was going to show it and then students posted... Um, right. Uh, posters about it. Right. And so... And then it got to the studio. Right. And, then and the so studio, the projectionist exactly. refused. Yeah. That's right. And uh, later on, after that, kind of got by... And it's because USC is, is subsidized by many of the studios, or at least was in the day. Yes. Oh, I'm sure it still is. I'm sure it is. Anyway, he ended up taking it to the Cal Institute, the California Institute for the Arts, where they uh, were going to allow him to show clips. Yep. So he showed a 142-minute clip, which I'm... <laughs> For all the shit that we can talk about Gilliam, which I really don't want to because oh, I, I do respect him as an artist. It's a bold move. I, I love it. I don't necessarily respect him as a director, but I do respect him, one, as an animator, and two, a visualist. It's incredible. that I, I can't say I wouldn't have done the same thing. Yeah. If I believed as much as I did in the film, I would absolutely have done the same thing. And so you had all these other clandestine guerrilla clip screenings. Yes. And of course it got round to the LA film critics. And in a in a 
what was essentially a bold move, and we mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, how it was largely ignored by East Coast critics. The LA critics gave it Picture. pretty much everything. Picture, director, screenplay. Yeah. I mean, they really sent a message to the studios and saying, you need to release Gilliam's version. Ultimately, like I said, they released a 131-minute cut, and I think the first time in the States his version was ever seen was the Criterion Laserdisc. That would make sense. Yeah. So there you go. There's the history of Brazil. Probably more, as you said, it's probably more interesting than the actual film itself. Yeah, I, I mean, I was interested. I I was really glued to the to the TV. I didn't want to look away. I was I wanted to know what, how the story progressed because yeah. I didn't I didn't know. I chose not to read that much about it before I I watched it and found myself amazed and proud to be in the industry in a way yeah. to see somebody fight so hard for what they worked on and what they believed in even though from another point of view uh, as a film lover not finding the movie very interesting yeah i i do certainly think that there is a good as they said i i think he could have delivered something that was around the 2 hour mark and it would have been much more streamlined. There's a lot in the dream sequences. Yeah, yeah. For me, going back to the film itself, there's a lot in the dream sequences that is a little bit on the nose and really unnecessary. And they do I, go very long. I, I almost think I'd be interested to see a cut without the dream sequences. But then again, you wouldn't have the great image of him wearing that, that beautiful armor yeah. with the wings. And of course, I love and, I love Criterion's cover, the, the image... Of, of Sam flying out of the massive skyscraper of filing cabinets, essentially. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of imagery in them to like, but at the same time, you could you could make the argument for the fact that they don't need to be in the film. I think the film... They don't really advance the story. No. It gives us our early... It, it gives us his connection to Jill. Yeah. You know, and that's that that is important, but... You could have had just maybe one dream sequence at the beginning to show that us one. where his headspace yeah, is at. Yeah, I agree. And yeah. you have the connection to Jill there so that when we do see her, we go, oh my God, that's the woman of his dreams. I don't know if that would have saved it for me, but I do think that, I mean, in terms of them finding that compromise, right. I yeah. think that would have helped. And finding the, the golden samurai, I'm sure it's a, I'm sure it's a metaphor for something, but we don't, it's a metaphor we don't need. Yeah. You get, you get everything you need to know about bureaucracy just from the, you know, all the reality of the film. Yeah. This nightmarish reality. Do you? Ha I mean, I'm sure you do. Do you have a favorite scene? Um, I do. I do very much like all the stuff with with the plastic surgeons. I love the Jim Broadbent character, especially when we see him later at his mother's party and is a little bit drunk, and his accent kind of slips a little bit into something a little more guttural. Yeah. When he's drunk, that's very good. All the stuff with Michael Palin. I absolutely adore Palin. He's one of my. He's probably my favorite Python. Yeah. Some of the, the stuff that he did in the Python films, especially in Life of Brian, I don't think he doesn't have a bad moment in Life of Brian. And again, we'll address that when we get to that film. Sure. But he is, as I mentioned earlier, he is the most charming torturer in film history. I do love the, the moment where the boss calls his wife the wrong name and he keeps calling his wife the wrong name. Yes. And at one point, I think Sam goes, are you going to keep you going to keep calling her Barbara? And he's like, yeah. Barbara's a fine name. <laughs> I, I mean, and that's the thing is like I can find parts of this movie that I enjoyed, yeah. but yeah. the good parts don't add to a whole good movie. No, yeah. no, it's it's weaker than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Uh, so so circling back, we we've, we've mentioned that the the L.A. film critics adored the movie, snubbed by the New York film critics, and we did mention the Academy Awards. 
Yes, but the uh, it did uh, it did win a couple of BAFTAs as well. The the British version of the Academy Awards. It took production design and special visual effects. Yep, and I. I can't argue with that. I mean, it's a it's a great looking film. Oh there yeah, yep, exactly. Extremely striking visuals in there. Costumes are wonderful. Uh, Catherine Hellmond wears one that just blows me away every time I see it. It's the hat in the shape of an of a heel, of a high heeled shoe. Yeah, that's kind of that either that leopard or cheetah print or yeah. something like that. That is a a very striking image. But despite all of this, all the kind of mixed reviews of it, Rotten Tomatoes. 98%. Yep, and I can't believe the audience is pretty close behind. It's 90, and, it's, 90. and that is high. I mean, I, I, I am surprised by that. Yeah. I, well, I guess I wonder what version they've seen and what version they prefer. Well, you hope it's not the Love Conquers All version because that, hope. it makes even less sense yeah. than the long cut. Yeah. Um, it's ranked... Well, the BFI, when they did their Greatest British Films of All Time list, their 1999 list, I'm sure there's been an updated one since, but on that particular list, it's ranked 54th. I saw, I saw the one from Time Out in 2017 where it was ranked 24, the uh, be- and that's, best that's British film. That's way too high. I would agree. Roger Ebert. We, we usually mention Roger Ebert. I, got, I had his too. It, it's hard to follow and uh, shows a general lack of discipline. You, yeah. can't, you can't argue with Ebert there. Uh, I have another one, uh, Kenneth Turan from the uh, LA Times, the most potent piece of satiric political cinema since Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, I, I, I'm almost I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's probably the best piece of of criticism that Gilliam has ever received. If somebody compared one of my films, if I were to make films, compare it to Kubrick, I'd be over the moon. I'd be like, that's all right, I can retire now. Yeah, I I had a uh, Pauline Kael's New Yorker review oh she she's usually very brutal but she she liked it oh did she she said it's like a stone slapstick 1984 a nightmare comedy in which the comedy is just an aspect of the nightmarishness the title refers to pop escapism of the past what you can only dream about in the squalor and sporadic terrorist violence of anglo-american police state somewhere in the 20th century visually it's an original bravara piece of movie making with a weirdly ingenious vertical quality the camera always seems to be moving up and down rarely across you get the feeling that people live and work squashed at the bottom of hollow towers that's wonderful writing oh it is yeah I, i've always liked pauline kale and yeah. she, she's uh, she's one of the true wordsmiths oh totally yeah especially now i mean she's i mean she's no longer reviewed but yeah um yeah. I, w- I would agree yeah but i can't i i agree that she's a good wordsmith i don't agree with her assessment of it so we usually do favorite shots and uh unsung heroes yeah. Uh, would you like to go first with those? My unsung hero is De Niro. And that doesn't surprise me. And I, I, I guess I can't say that he's unsung. I mean, he's in the movie, he's credited and, and everything. But I love his energy, especially the first time we see him when he comes in to fix the AC. Do you know who didn't love his energy? Uh, was it Gilliam? Yeah. Yeah. Hated, hated working with De Niro. It was so surprised that they got him. Yeah. And then instantly regretted the decision because De Niro... I don't know if he still is now, but then, in his heyday, was such a method actor. All the props were his own. Yes, he I heard would about that. demand multiple takes. takes I heard, even yeah. when they got it on the second or third one, he would go up to twenty some odd takes. And Gilliam is reported to have wanted to strangle him by the end of his last day. But I thought, and but from De, I thought De Niro said that he enjoyed every second of it. Absolutely, right? that's what I heard. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Which is why he agreed to go on some of the talk shows. And, yeah. Exactly. And say nothing. Well, you know, his presence, like, you know, is a lot. Yeah. Uh, favorite shots? I do love his, his lens work. I do like the the close wide-angle stuff and how 
distorted everything seems it does it does increase the feeling of anxiety and that things aren't quite right if i had to pick a favorite scene in the movie doesn't even have to be a scene is or, there, or is, there a, moment, is there but, like a striking shot you know i think my favorite parts of the movie were the comedic stuff i i enjoyed the like the desk through the wall yes and, i would say the desk through the wall and the and honestly, De Niro rigging up the mis, the machine or the the suits so that they fill hmm. up with with the shit. I thought yeah. those were funny. They made me. I thought they were genuinely funny moments. Well, they 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 do well to kind of pop the balloon a little bit and, and yeah. take some of the tension out of it. But like, and yeah, the ser- the serious stuff just didn't land on me yeah. all that much. Probably because I wasn't too connected to sure. Yeah, but what about uh, you? Uh, Bob Hoskins and the, the oh man, and I failed here because I didn't write down the other actor's name. I didn't either, and I should have. I, I like the two of them. I like their dynamic. They're really wonderful. I really wish there was more of them in it, and the way they kind of repeat each other's dialogue. Yeah, for no reason. Yeah, that, that's kind of funny. And again, I'm just a Bob Hoskins fanboy. Utterly adore him. And then as far as shots go, there is one that I really love, and I know they used it in every trailer, when he is driving up to the Buttles residence, and he's driving towards the two cooling towers, and then all of a sudden a man's, a drunken man's face comes down into it, and you realize that he just drove past a model where a drunk guy is, like, banging on the side of the glass, and he's got a beer bottle or a liquor bottle in his hand or something like that. There's something kind of so unnecessary about that. Yeah. But... It, it's striking. Okay, hold on. There was there was a very small moment that I really, really liked. And I believe it's when Sam and Jill are escaping from the ministry and there's that like shootout. It might be it might be what's in his head. It might be the Yeah. The, but Oh, but, is it the janitor who keeps who mopping? Keeps mopping. During, and again, which is another great sort of commentary on violence just being a part of everyday and life. And I think it was because it was it wasn't just that she kept doing it, but it was more like, "Ugh, oh, I'm gonna have to clean this now." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. There, that was that was that was humorous and, and that's and compelling. And that sort of to me comes from that's very much rooted in Python esque humor because sure. there is something. I mean, you can't separate the fact that Gillian was in Python, and so there's something of that humor. I mean, the reason they were so so successful and the reason they, uh, you know, what the series went as long as it did is that you know that humor is so satirical and poignant and it does run through all of Gilliam's films and it runs through the writing with other stuff that the guys have done Palin and, and Idol and even going as far as Fish Called Wanda that yeah. John Cleese wrote yeah. and starred in and co-directed yeah that's right yep. yeah. so you were just talking about Gillian's films I was so seeing as though I, I do honestly think it's a shame that Gillian is only represented the once in the book and I understand why if you're going to choose one of his films, you would choose probably what is most iconic. Because Brazil is an iconic film, not just for, for the themes that it deals with, but because of, as we talked about, the public battle. Yeah. I mean, the, the, there is some striking iconic imagery in it that we just talked about, you yeah. know, especially Sam in his full armor and, and the wings and things like that. But um, I wanted to take a little bit of time because I have seen all of Gilliam's films and I wanted to, to kind of rank them my my rankings of them here for you now, uh, and I'm going to to skip the two Python films that he quote unquote undire- uh, co-directed. One because and we'll again we'll deal with it when we get to Holy Grail. But I mean, my understanding is that Terry Jones did most of the heavy lifting, and sure. that none of the other Pythons really took him seriously as a director, and he's really only credited as co-director on Meaning of Life for the short film at the beginning, the yep. the Crimson Permanent Assurance. But anyway, so. So I'll take you through his filmography 
just as a little, uh, just to kind of end the uh, the podcast here, and then we'll. I think we both already decided that it shouldn't be in the book, and maybe we have some Gilliam substitutions that we can get to at the end of this list. Yep, that that's exactly what I was thinking. So at number eleven, so we're I'm and I'm again. The man who killed Don Quixote hasn't, as of the recording of this, been released in the States yet. So I haven't seen it. I certainly didn't fly out to Cannes to see it as much as I would have liked you to. You didn't? No, I know, oh, right? Cheap bastard. Don't worry. When we get when we get subsidized by Criterion, we'll, uh, we'll be able to do things like that. It's going to be fantastic. Because Criterion, even though we may not like the movie, your restoration is gorgeous. I called them out on Facebook. Did you? I did. Very nice. Yep. That's so please, please, please sponsor us. I know. I, we really want it. We, we do. So badly. <laughs> I'll come live in New York. I don't care. That's where they're based out of, right? I is think it, so, yeah. I think it is, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so here we go. So the rankings, so the 11 films that he has directed by himself, feature films that he has directed by himself. At number 11, not a hard choice for me to put at the bottom of the list, Munchausen. Okay. Munchausen is just an even more, for me, out-of-control Brazil. And please chime in whether you've seen them or not, and if you haven't seen it, no opinion. Uh, Excellent. Uh, Munchausen is just a goddamn mess. It is exhausting, infuriating, headache-inducing. If there's one good thing I can say about Munchausen, it further affirms my love of Oliver Reed and how impossible it was to light the man badly. Sure. He is covered in filth in that film and down in this sweaty, underworld, industrial-type hell and still looks striking and again reaffirms my man crush of him at number 10 we have the brothers Grimm. as i already mentioned a little early in the podcast i feel like that is much more of a weinstein film than it is a gilliam too much studio interference in that made for something that could have been great and ultimately wasn't haven't seen it no opinion let's just move to number nine uh tideland at number nine which is kind of I know it was a big passion project of his, and it's kind of a take on Alice in Wonderland, but ultimately the film really fails for me. It's overlong, again, very indulgent. The, uh, the performance by the young lady whose name escapes me in it is fabulous, and so is Jeff Bridges, but ultimately their performances don't save it for me. And it's, the whole thing is really uncomfortable because it deals in children in peril, and there's a little bit of... I'll just throw it out there. It seems like the film is going to dip into child, flat-out child abuse at some point, so it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable to watch, but what are you going to do? Haven't seen it. No opinion. At uh, We'll just do seven and eight back-to-back. Uh, Brazil, for me, is number seven overall, followed by Zero Theorem, which is the film he made with Christoph Waltz, and they're, they're kind of interchangeable for me. They feel like they could be spiritual sequels to one another. Now, you know he... I was confused. So he's... At two different points, he said that Brazil was the middle part of a dystopian trilogy between Time Bandits and Munchausen. And then he said that it was the start of a trilogy, a different trilogy, that went um, Brazil, 12 Monkeys, Zero Theorem. And then apparently later on, he went to go say that he never said that about the, the, the Brazil, 12 Monkeys, Zero that Theorem. Is, that is the beautiful contradiction about the man that is Gilliam. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, Zero Theorem. Haven't seen, no opinion. Brazil, you've already heard yeah, it. You've been listening to yeah. it. At number six, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Haven't seen it, no opinion. That's a shame. I, I do think you should see that one. Obviously, it's very famous for being Heath Ledger's last film, died yeah. during the filmmaking. Then, of course, you had Colin Farrell, Johnny Depp, and I believe the third was Jude Law step in to fill out those roles. Well, and and right. it kind of worked out. Not obviously very sad that Heath Ledger died in the in at all or in the manner that he did or even at all of but course. the the way the film 
is structured, I mean, he was he was really able to get himself out of a bind there, and it's it is a stunningly beautiful film. It really is. I do have probably, interest in seeing that you, one. It is probably his most underrated. Okay. Uh, at number five, we have a cult favorite, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I enjoy that movie quite a bit. I. I, I go back and forth on it. Sometimes it falls further down the list. Sometimes it goes further up. But um, the performance in that that makes it for me is Benicio. I, and, well, and, and Johnny Depp, too. I mean, but yeah. Well, but here's both the of them... deal. I've seen Where the Buffalo Roam several times now. Yeah. And I do believe that Bill Murray is the far superior representation of Thompson. Sure. Johnny Depp is notorious overactor. And the more I watch Where the Buffalo Roam, the more I hate Depp's performance in it. That's fair. Which is why it, it moves around a little That's bit. Fair. But it's, I mean, it's got some really iconic stuff. It's extremely faithful to the book. Yeah. And visually, it's just a, it's, it's Gilliam yep. gone wild. Yep. Um, at number four, his directorial, his solo directorial debut, Jabberwocky. Haven't seen it. Which, no again, opinion. is another Criterion. Yes, it is. Recent. Recent. Very recent yeah. Criterion. And they're... Uh, restoration is just fabulous. I believe it's a 2K restoration, and uh, it it kind of feels like a uh, again a spiritual sequel, but this time to Holy Grail. It deals in the you it's it feels there is a more of a running thread through it, but it does have that kind of series of vignette thing going on to it. And Palin is just wonderful in it. The the real reason to watch it, and you kind of feel like all their budget went into this, but the actual Jabberwocky at the end is for 1977, and for the money that they had, which was almost nothing yeah i they had less than what they were working with on uh, holy grail oh. is my understanding yeah. the the creature is incredible now that was your number four that was number four okay so you have three left and i've seen two of them and i think i know what your number one is but i'll yeah, yeah. number three is probably his most his most seen and probably his most commercially successful 12 monkeys yep yep i do uh, yeah it's good i, I enjoy i do enjoy it and yeah. it's funny because i watched i actually watched that movie for this podcast, because after I watched Brazil, I needed to get the taste of that movie out of my mouth. And so I watched 12 Monkeys thinking that that was going to be my replacement film. But it is not. Hmm. It is probably your number two. You would be wrong, because I already know that you haven't seen Time Bandits. Oh, fantastic. Oh, we agree. I love it. Okay, so when I... I first created this list, Time Bandits was number one. Okay, that's what I thought. But, again, another great Criterion. In Which fact, I these, haven't these, seen. these last two are both great yes. Criterion releases. Yeah. We're, we're just going to keep plugging it yep. until you guys hear us. Yep. Um, Time Bandits at number two. I saw that at an extremely young age. Sure. It's, I've got a very, very strong connection to it. It was one of the first films that I ever remember my dad showing me. And one of the first good film-going experiences that I had with him. I'll share the worst film-going experience that I had with him when we get to that episode, because it is in the book. I won't spoil it now. It's a great story, and he'll tell it to absolutely anybody that'll listen. Number one, of course, if you know his filmography, you'll know the last film I haven't mentioned is Fisher King. Which is so wonderful. And it's and it's so unlike anything else in his wheelhouse. It does have some of that fantasy, some of those Quixote-like yes, exactly. things. exactly, yeah. But it feels, it, it, it feels like him very reserved. It feels like uh, him making a, a, a real adult, film and I, I when it and when it comes through when he's allowed to let the the robin williams fantasy stuff creep in mm -hmm. you buy it because you've already followed robin williams you know what he's kind of going through mentally and you just accept you accept that it's his reality it's not right. reality and i don't know how much of that is the great screenplay that he had to work with 
because he is a director for hire on this. It was one of the one of the few films in this list that he wasn't a huge part of the the pre production development team on. Sure. I believe he came in fairly late okay. in the game, like they already had other directors who had passed on it and things like that. But um, yeah, the Fisher King, seen it two or three times now yeah. within about two years, and I just I keep finding like it's one of those great like a like a you keep peeling away layers and finding new things to love and adore about it. It yeah. is probably top two or three Robin Williams performances, top it's, two or three Jeff Bridges performances. Yeah, it's up there. And uh, Amanda Plummer. Mm-hmm. Mercedes Rule, who won Supporting she, Actress she for She did. Uh, both of them, not enough gets says about the, the female performances in that. They yeah. are both stunningly... And Amanda Plummer just breaks my heart over and over again. Oh, Her performance I mean, She does, but that's so funny, because I actually... I think it's Mercedes Rule. Really? Continually... That long-suffering... Yeah, but, but just there. Yeah. Yeah. I, see, a, yeah. this is... I wish Gillian would make more films like this. It, it's funny, it's, and I don't grounded mean, in reality, but still having that fun, playful fantasy and not, element. I, we won't go on this tangent, but I just want to say I feel the same way about Christopher Nolan. I wish he would go back and make some more movies about people yes. and not ideas. Yes, done. That's, you heard you you heard it here, and I'm a fanboy to the max. Yeah. But I wish he'd go back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. His next film, I feel like he was kind of getting there with Dunkirk a little bit. He wanted to try. But he still had to take a story that could have been told much more simply, and and, and I was like, I just I, Nolan'd it up. Yeah, and I do like the movie. No, no, it, it doesn't make my top five. But it, but yeah, anyway, it's no Saving Private Ryan as far as no, war films go. No, it's not. There you go. Anyways. So there we go. There is there is my Gilliam ranked. Love it. Um, we'd love to hear what you think. Do, yes. do you agree with with my rankings? Why or why not? That'd be great to hear. If you want to throw those up on uh, Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, we we want to hear them. Yeah. And, and I guess before we sign off, I think we both agree that, that Brazil shouldn't be in the should book. Should not be in the book. Is there another Gilliam film that you would... Subs- I'm Fisher gonna, King. I'm going to assume that we both think it's Fisher King. Yeah. I would like to see two in there. I would like to see those top two, Fisher King and Time Bandits in there. Maybe in the next revision. Sure. Yep. Uh, so yeah, two notes from us. Um, but yeah, like Ian said, please leave us some comments and your thoughts on, on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, if you haven't already, you know, subscribe to us on Google Play. You can listen to us also on Spotify and uh, subscribe on iTunes. We got some more reviews. We got some ratings. We're, we're, we're getting more and more traction and we're, we're loving it. So uh, keep going. Tell people about it. Uh, we're not going anywhere. Uh, so until next time, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week. <laughs>